Welcome to the Reading Teacher's Lounge. Come join the conversation with other curious teachers as they discover teaching strategies and resources to reach all of their learners. I'm Shannon. And I'm Mary. And together we bring an honest and experienced point of view to the topics we cover to shed light in best practices. Whether you're a new teacher seeking guidance, a seasoned pro looking for fresh ideas, or a curious parent, our community offers something for everyone. So grab your favorite cup of coffee or tea and cozy up in the virtual lounge with us and eavesdrop on our professional conversations. Listen, learn, and immediately add to your bag of teaching tricks. Find what works for your students with us in the Reading Teacher's Lounge. Hello, welcome to the Reading Teacher's Lounge. We have a great guest um, with us today. Her name is Lindsay Kemeny. Did I say that correctly? Yep. Yes. <laughs> and um, I've, I've noticed her for a while on Twitter and Instagram and in this, you know, science of reading literacy space. And we are just so excited to have us have her with us in the reading teacher's lounge today to talk about um, her literacy experience. And then also she just published an amazing new book called seven mighty moves research backed classroom tested strategies to ensure K to three reading success. So welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I have listened to your podcast for a while. And so it's an honor to be a guest. Well, I think you're going to fit right in because we we share a lot of the same values and teaching practices. So um, for listeners who might not know you, can you tell us about um, how you trained as a teacher and some of your teaching experience and what you're currently doing? Yeah, I first started teaching a long time ago. I'm old. <laughs> same. And, uh, and um I was heavily trained in balanced literacy um, and I was teaching second grade at first. Um, and then I took a break to stay home with my children for a little while. And I went back to teaching. And uh, when I went back to teaching, I was teaching kindergarten and my son was diagnosed with dyslexia that same year. And so that's what caused me to really pivot. I had to take a hard look at what I was teaching Uh you know, took a deep dive into effective literacy instruction, was really angry that I hadn't been taught some of this stuff and that some of the stuff I had been taught um, has been debunked by research. And so I just, I like, I just kept learning, learning, learning. And so you're asking about, you know, my background. So now I have been um, certified with Orton Gillingham. Um, I, lots of trainings, top 10 tools, reading every book you could imagine. Um, I got my state interventionist endorsement and um, certified through the Center for Effective Reading Instruction. Um, so lots of things. I love learning. Um, I've done letters training. I just like, I can't get enough. I love it. So I've taught kindergarten, second grade, and first grade. I'm currently teaching first grade um, and I am still a teacher. So I, I wrote the book and everything and I, I do professional development, but teaching is where it's at for me. Like that's where I get my joy. So I love being in the classroom. Yes. Well, we have the same classroom experience. I've also taught third grade, but otherwise uh -huh. it was K one and two for me. Um, and I love that the book has so many pictures of your sweet students and yeah. you putting to practice, you know, you showing the application of all the suggestions that you make. 
And that's what's fun about the book is all those, like there's not a single stock image. It's all pictures from my classroom and videos from my classroom. So yeah, I love that part of it. It's kind of fun. Mm -hmm. And so did you start learning about this and trying it with your son and then in your classroom or did you try the kind of both places at the same time? Yeah, absolutely. I, I start like, as I was learning, I was applying things both with my son and in my classroom and just saw a huge difference. And I feel like before, I mean, I always loved to teach reading. That was always my favorite thing, but I didn't have a lot of clarity for like what to do for, with, you know, like how to create a proficient reader, I guess. I was, I feel like- yeah, Mary and for- I have said like, we we could te- help a, a decent reader become better. Yeah. But not have to take someone from zero to reading. Yeah. And that's what now I feel like I have so much clarity into what happens. And I'm not just like facilitating reading activities, but I'm actually instructing. So I, I don't know. It's so different. Yeah. So well, how did this book come about? Oh, well- So back when my son was first diagnosed and then I started this journey, I I told you I was like really angry. And so I started a blog because I wanted to share what I was learning. And I just became really passionate because I thought, you know, every teacher deserves to know this stuff. Every Mm -hmm. student deserves a teacher to know this stuff. And so I started a blog. I'm not a huge blogger. Like I said, I'm a teacher. I'm a busy mom, but I would write some things and it got attention. Like, uh, so a lot of people were sharing it on Twitter. Um, Emily Hanford would share it. In fact, invited me to come speak with her back in 2019. And Oh, wow. And- when the podcast first came out. <laughs> yeah. Well, it Amazing. was one of hers. Okay. I think her first, her first one was at 2017, 2018. That's right. Yes. So anyway, um, so it was 2019, I got to speak with her. And so I think because people were sharing it so much, it it got attention from people. And it just so happens that some people from Scholastic saw my blog and read through it. So they reached out to me a year ago and said, hey, would you be interested in writing a book? And I was so scared. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still scared. But I was just like, oh my gosh, this is my mission. Like I need to share this. And, you know, my son has always incurred, like he's always said, you're the one with the brave voice, mom. You're the one with the brave voice. And so like, I was thinking about that. I need to have a brave voice. So even though it's putting myself out there and open to criticism, um, it's, I think it, it's important to, to get the word out. So were you writing it for, I mean, I know when I make these podcast episodes, I'm basically writing it, I'm making them for myself, like 15 years ago and saying the stuff to myself, my past self, like, I wish you knew this, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so who are you writing this to? Oh, to- yeah. I haven't thought of it like that, but I love that. But it's definitely to teachers and both teachers brand new to this information, mm-hmm. brand new. And and also to teachers who who know they've they've done letters training. They're learning about science of reading training, uh science of reading, but they're like, well, what does it look like in the classroom? What mm-hmm. exactly do I do? How do I this pull? is the application yeah. of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that was my goal. Is Scholastic gonna let us it's called seven mighty moves. Can we like really get into it and te- yeah. tell our listeners 
what the seven moves are. Of course. We're not going to share every secret in the book. They're going to need to get the book, <laughs> but especially for the pictures and the videos, like that is golden. You have yeah, QR, codes, yeah, QR codes scattered throughout to link yeah. to so much of um, watching what you explain. So, well, let's just start. Like, what is the first move? Okay. The the first move is intentional phonemic awareness. So honestly, before I didn't even know phonemic awareness was a thing. Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's embarrassing. But I didn't. I didn't know. And then I had to do several moves in this area because then once I learned about phonemic awareness and started teaching it, I had to kind of shift again and realize, you know, we don't need to spend huge amounts of time on oral only phonemic awareness, we can pare that down and learning that we want to get to the phoneme as quickly as we can. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if a child is stuck on rhyming and can't rhyme, don't just keep them stuck on rhyming and never get to working on blending and segmenting phonemes. So, um, so yeah, there's just like several, I guess, moves within this overall phonemic awareness. I like that you started it with that because we say, I mean, since season one, because that was my big aha moment. I gave the dibbles like nonsense word and also phonemic segment fluency to my fifth graders who couldn't read and they failed the dibbles test, the kindergarten dibbles test. And that was my like, oh, this is why they can't read. Like that was my big aha that they don't have blending and segmenting. And so Anytime I meet a new reading resource student, that's what I immediately assess first is their phonemic awareness to see if there's some gaps in those areas. Because if they have segmenting, if they struggle with segmenting, they're going to struggle with spelling. And if they mm-hmm. struggle with blending, they're going to struggle with, you know, reading. And then, you know, they got, you know, it's a reciprocal relationship too. So I appreciate that yeah, you said that. Absolutely. I also appreciate in the book that you did, uh, you explained, a, uh, you gave a more nuanced answer with the you know, should it be done in the dark or not? And should you always show letters? Um, And I appreciate that because um, you said like, sometimes, like you said in the intervention space, which is what Mary and I have said too, is that we might pull, we, we try to do as much with letters as we can, but sometimes we want to make sure that they truly do have those oral skills and we'll pull the letters away for a second to make sure that they really can orally blend and segment and take off sort of a cognitive load of looking at the letter, memorizing the letter sound too, just play with the sounds and then we'll put the letter back in the activity. Yeah. I don't think it's so black and white. And so I get kind of frustrated. These people will say these blanket statements or, you know, really arguing and maybe even getting a little rude sometimes. And I'm like, look, there's space and there's some, a lot of gray area here. And yeah. And that's like, I, I share that story of Max in there kind of showing, you know, when it was helpful not to have letters and when it's helpful to have letters. So mm-hmm. no, I really appreciate that. Uh, we had Wiley Blevins on last season and he just said, we just need to have more nuance in the conversation and, yeah. you know, in the science of reading community. And so I appreciate that you're bringing that yeah. to the table. Yeah. Um, can you share some of your favorite activities? And then would you share with the listeners some of those cute songs you use for letting it say, I won't make you sing <laughs> here, but they were so cute. That was part of my, I know, my I, favorite I part of the chapter. Sing. I'm not a singer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. Um, I have, and I didn't make up these songs. And so, um, but I share like the the lyrics with one. I found the teacher who, who did those and we got to print her name and put it in. And then the blending song, um, I could never find, like, I know the teacher I learned it from, but she didn't know who had actually written the song. So mm-hmm. we couldn't print the lyrics in the book. 
but um okay I'll, I'll try to sing it but I'm not a singer okay. so the slide or I'll do the break it down song the break it down song goes break it down 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 when I say the words you'll say the sounds break it down and so uh and then I'll give them a word and they will segment it so it's just like a quick fun way the kids get all into it and it's just more fun than saying now I'm going to say a word and you'll say the sounds mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just a fun way it doesn't take a lot of time the kids get singing and then we just practice segmenting and then I have a song um for blending too it's slide slide slippity slide when I say the sounds you're going to make them glide and then I'll go you know mm, at and they'll say Matt, and we'll just do several. So it's just kind of fun way. Um, blending and segmenting are where it's at. Um, and it's just a fun way to introduce those. And um, you, they can't see because we're on the Zoom screen and we're recording yeah. too, but um, <laughs> we're recording the audio as well. But uh, you were making little body yeah. movements when you were <laughs> singing those. And so it really lends itself to that kinesthetic piece too, with the yeah. multi is that they're hearing it, they're seeing it, they're making movements as they're breaking it apart or putting those sounds together. I love yeah. that. And if you want to see the movements, it's, the QR codes are in there, right? It will show videos. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, we like going on FCRR as well for phonemic awareness activities because uh-huh. they have yeah. so many, even for second and third grade, because usually... You know, it seems like kindergarten teachers are really great at those phonemic awareness activities. And then it seems like the other grade levels think, oh, we don't ever have to do phonemic awareness again. But yeah, yeah. And um, I would add, I love word chaining. And so mm-hmm. that's an example of when you're doing phonemic awareness and adding letters. So it's a combination of phonics and phonemic awareness. Uh, and I love doing that. Yes. We use yes. little whiteboards. So it's really easy to erase the letter and then, you know, mm-hmm. so yeah. So let's move to move two. So now we've talked about phonemic awareness and now you're breaking into the phonics, but I think it was important that you titled this chapter teach phonics, but that's not where you stopped it. You said teach phonics explicitly and systematically. Yes. How do you define explicitly and systematically and why did you include those words in the move? Well, because before I thought I was teaching phonics and if, and I would have said, Oh, absolutely. I'm teaching phonics. But when I look back at what I was doing again, it was more like I was facilitating these activities. So we did things like word chaining. It was called making words, right? Or you didn't, um, I could tell Pat Cunningham was the book that you had, (laughs) which I really like a lot of her things. Like, I like brand name phonics, but you're right. It's like, it was sort of um, haphazard and it's haphazard without a clear scope and sequence. Yeah. And that's the key right there is that you need a scope and sequence to follow. And really I was so reactive, like, oh, we missed this concept in this book. So I'm going to work on that today. And there was, I wasn't following a scope Mm -hmm. of skills, right? A scope and sequence of skills. So that was a huge shift was changing and following and, and just knowing we can't leave things to chance. And especially I'm teaching first grade now and I'm going to start at the beginning and we're going to go through all, you know, the basics of the code. Yes. Um, First grade. That was so eye-opening for me. The year, the first year I taught first grade, I was like, oh my gosh, we go through every vowel sound, you know, like by October, November, you're like really knee deep in and long vowels and scary. Yeah. And being explicit and clear about it. Um, it's so funny. I think it was, I was at the reading league conference last week and I think it was, I was in Louisa Moat's session and she was talking about, uh, 
uh, a program where it was having ED and it was going like jump plus Ed, jump, Ed, jump, Ed, jumped. Oh, <laughs> and we all just started laughing. Like, she's like what? what? Like, what is that? And so now explicit, we're clearly explaining, oh, look, the ED suffix, it can spell three different sounds. Mm -hmm. Here's when they spell them. And explicit is like direct, student-friendly directions, clear, and lots of opportunities for students to practice and participate. It's not boring, get up there and just the teacher just lecturing. (laughs) There was a phrase you used in the chapter. I thought it was really cute. And it was, we've heard drill and kill before, which is awful. And what do you say instead? Yeah, drill, well, skill and thrill. It can be skill and thrill. And that comes from Anita Archer. She's my hero. She wrote the foreword of the book. And that's where I first heard that. I love that. Um, Just that it doesn't, especially because even if it might seem boring to us, because we know these skills, it's not boring to the students because they have an opportunity to feel successful and to do something they know how to do. It's not boring. Yeah. And also why I think it's good to have routines Mm -hmm. because I mean, the students know what to do and now they can focus more on the content and they're successful and happy and it's not boring to them. It's, it's nice that they know the routine of the day and of the lesson and what they're going to do. I love that. I got that more and more into that every year of my teaching, because then I wasn't focusing so much on telling directions. I was teaching content, not directions because they knew the directions every day. Yeah. So what components have you found to be needed in an effective phonics lesson? What Um, do you include in most of your lessons? Well, uh, so I like to start with a quick review, right? And especially if there's something critical to that that day's content, Um, doing a quick little phonemic awareness of warm-up, introducing that new concept, and they need time to read words and spell words, right? in, in that lesson. So those are huge. And then always more opportunities for practice. So I kind of give my like a typical phonics lesson plan. Um, you know, the order is not set in stone, but then I also say, Ooh, and extended practice. Cause that's the thing. And I heard Pam Kastner said this great quote where she said, if it's been taught, but not mastered, there's probably a practice gap. Oh, and like I that. really like that. We need, you know, some students need a lot more practice than others too until mm-hmm. they're automatic. So, Oh, I like that a lot. Yes. Um. Are you looking for your literacy soul sister teacher bestie you haven't met yet? Someone to provide support and guidance for the ever increasing demands and responsibilities you face at school. Here in the Reading Teachers Lounge, we understand the challenges that dedicated reading teachers like you are dealing with every day. We've been in your shoes and are ready to help you navigate through any struggles that are leaving you drained and overwhelmed. Through our Patreon levels of support, we deepen the conversation for you to learn more about how to improve your students' literacy skills, boost your confidence in the classroom, and discover actual ways to work smarter, not harder. Our coaching offers small group or one-on-one sessions tailored to address your unique needs and goals. When you join, you immediately receive regular encouragement, monthly learning sessions, demonstrations of strategies and techniques, updates on our current reading instructional practices and the resources that we're using, and much, much more. 
Visit patreon.com backslash reading teachers lounge to learn details and find out how to try out a free week of any level of support. Just imagine a teaching experience where you feel fully supported and are no longer struggling in isolation. We'll help you figure out the right things to do to reach all of your readers. Feel better about your teaching today by joining the Reading Teachers Lounge Patreon. I was going to say that, especially like I've noticed, especially in terms of the practice gap, guided practice, like mm-hmm. that we need to do a lot more of the we do turn. It's like sometimes we do. And I think you mentioned that in the chapter, but I've also seen it in my classroom observations in the schools I've worked in where it goes immediately from the teacher does it to the students do it. But that guided practice is where that feedback can really come in and you can clear up those misconceptions. So, yeah, it, and I love it. So it's that, you know, Anita Archer is the one that co- coined the terms. I do, we do, you do. Mm-hmm. And um, I did a training with her a year ago and uh, it was like a whole week long training with Anita Archer. It was so amazing. Lucky you. <laughs> <laughs> And she talked about how, you know, it's not just I do, we do, you do. And that the order, it might be I do, we do, we do, we do, we do, we do, we do, you do. Oh, we do, we do, you do. Yes. And then what was really interesting, she had this slide um, and she had all those we do's written, right? And some were in capitals, capital, capital, capital. And then some were lowercase, lowercase, lowercase. And she did that intentionally because within that we do. So you're talking about like this guided practice. Think about the scaffolding we're providing and then pulling it back. That gradual release of responsibility. Gradually having the students take on more and more ownership of that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's like, oh, remember, we're, you know, we're spelling the word sick. Remember after a short vowel, what's the spelling? CK, right. And you're, so you're prompting, but then you're pulling that back. And then maybe you're just giving them, you know, what the word uh, luck this time. And you're not giving them that little verbal prompt to see if they can get that, you know? So I, I just thought that was really, I loved when she told me that, cause that is just an interesting way to think about it. Also that we do is that, you know, pulling back the scaffolding. So I wish like it's um, administrators and teachers. Um, it, it's it seems like they can only um, police sort of the teaching part of it, you know, and, and like our lesson plans and all of our de- lesson delivery. But to me, my lessons were always very fluid because I didn't focus so much on the teaching. I was focusing so much on the learning that oh. my gradual release and that like I do, we do, we do, you do. It was so like I was constantly like maybe going back. Oh, let's do a few more guided practice. Okay, now you're going to yeah. do it independently. Nope, let's do a few more. Or I'll call a spontaneous group or whatever. And so I never really even almost knew what direction it was going to take because I was just paying so close attention as to how well the students were mastering it and taking ownership of it. Yeah. Um, so I well, think it's just like huge. that focus, like focus on the learning instead of the yes. teaching. I love that. That's such a good point. Focus on the learning and not necessarily everything you're doing. Focus on how they're doing. I love that. Well, and when you're first few years of teaching, like you're just like, how do I teach? You know, like you are focused on the teaching. But Uh as I gained experience and the more I could, you know, kind of trust that I knew what I was doing. And I had lots of resources in my file cabinet and always had, um, you know, a printer that would make copies of my room. So, I mean, I could just spontaneously make copies if I needed to in my room and do an activity if I thought I needed it at the time. Yeah. Well, it just shows how important teacher knowledge is. Yes. Right? And, 
and the more knowledge you have, then you kind of know when to go off the script. If you have a scripted program mm-hmm. or whatever, you know when you need to pivot. Mm-hmm. I was lucky yeah. though. Um, I, I kind of had balanced literacy training too, but I never really followed it as prescribed. I was lucky enough to follow to find Wally Blevins resources like very early on in my career, like year two or year three. And I love to soap and sequence. That's still the one I follow. And um, he has in his books, the syllable types and everything. So I've always just layered that in, even when I had to teach Lucy Calkins, even when I had to teach other things. So yeah, I've pretty much only taught phonics explicitly and systematically, but I'm that's glad that you make it clear that that's yeah. how we need to do it. And mm-hmm. even when I did those Pat Cunningham activities, I followed the Wiley Blevins scope and sequence. Yeah. So I, oh, yeah. Good for you. I did not. I wish I could say the same, <laughs> but <laughs> yes, but I didn't um, know any better. That's why at the time. But yes. But I- you're right. Some of the activities that she suggests are like, um, I do like the one where, um, you know, like for the vowel teams and stuff, um, she says, is it right? that's I think that's what she calls the activity but like if it's the know. word seed like you spell it s-e-e-d and s-e-a-d and you see which one is the one that looks right mm-hmm. and I do like that activity mm-hmm. um, from her but then guess the covered word we know oh yeah <laughs> throw that one away don't ever talk about it again I know yes so let's move on to move three I think this one is really important um because I don't think we talk about strategies enough yeah decoding strategies and what you just said leads into this because I had to completely abandon those three queuing strategies uh, which is the things like look at the picture does it give you a clue and the kids are guessing from from the context or picture to figure out the word right so instead um, what prompts can we use and I kind of have three main ones first one pointing prompt. I just have to point at the word they missed and wait because a lot of them will fix that mistake. Or I point at the little part that they missed Mm -hmm. within the word. I use a pencil, you know, so I can point right there. Oh, that was eh. And then they can fix it themselves. Um, So pointing prompt, the first one, just pointing at the word they missed. Then um, I'll give a verbal prompt. So if they don't, if they, you know, read it wrong or they don't know it, I'll point to the part they they missed and say, oh, oh, you spells owl. What sound? Owl. And then we go to the third blending prompt and I have them blend that word. Um, house, house, and then they have it. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't need all these other cues and things. I love how Mark Seidenberg said the best cue to a word is the word itself. Mm. And that's what we need. They need to keep their eyes on the words and decode it left to right, get in the habit of looking at the word to help them and not like up in the air or up at you. Well, or no, at reading picture. your book, I knew how much experience you had because I have said so many times to students, is the word on my forehead? Why are you looking yeah. at me? Why are you looking at me? Like, you don't know this word. Look at the book, point to the word. So I know you've been there with those students where they're looking at you. I know. And I know it's like, they want to look anywhere else except the word. And it's the beginning of the year now. So it's just like all over again, I've got to train them because a lot of them don't have, you know, by the end, I would put a hand like a visor sort of over their forehead. So they couldn't look up at me. Yeah. (laughs) And even they, they just want you to, even if they say it right, they look up at you and they want that verbal. And I just, am like, look back down. Did you get it right? 
Yes, you did. You can look at that word and see, you know. (laughs) One of the things I do too, I always make the students go back and reread the sentence and I'll say Uh something like, oh, now that you know this word and all the sounds in this word, can you go back and read the sentence nice and smoothly? And um, I was just telling my teachers this because last week I was giving them a training on kind of the new way to do guided reading. And um, I was telling them in my 21 years of of teaching experience. I've never had a student go, I don't want to reread the sentence. They always are excited to reread that sentence. And then yeah. that gives another opportunity for that fluent reading, that orthographic mapping to happen. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So do you see any other common errors and poor habits besides that looking up thing? Uh, Yeah. The looking up, guessing, guessing, guessing is yeah. a huge one. And then they want to just um, they want to memorize the book, right? Mm-hmm. Or even if you go back and reread, sometimes they just want to hurry and say it like like they've memorized it. And so I have to have them use their finger to track for multiple reasons. But one thing is sometimes when they memorize it and they just want to like, you know, rattle off the sentence, mm-hmm. having saying, oh, your finger has to match your mouth slows them down and has yeah. them you know, look at those words, and then they're actually looking at the word and, and reading it. So um, I like that. But guessing is the biggest, you know, the hardest habit to to break, I guess. Uh, and so that's, I, that's the main one I spend my time on. And in the in the, um, so I have a QR code in that chapter where it's, I had put up my phone and was recording when I was working with a student and who, who guessed a lot. And so I got that on camera. And so I sent that to Scholastic so they could use it. And then there were some, by like, there were some issues with that. There's like some background noise and it was a little hard to hear. And so they asked me to redo that video, but so I was like, well, I could try, but I've worked with the, on guessing with that student so much and she's not guessing anymore. So I don't know if she'll guess. And they're like, okay, well, can you just try? I was like, okay. And so I got, you know, I set up my phone and I got a, a book a little bit harder to see if she would resort to guessing. And she didn't. Oh, and wow. So, you were a very effective teacher. <laughs> I was like so proud, but to, you know, to Scholastic, I'm like, well, I have bad news and good news. <laughs> The bad news is, you know, the good news is she's not guessing. Bad news, you're going to have to stick with that original video because she's not guessing anymore. That is a good problem to have. Yeah, it's a, a good, good problem. problem. It's because it's hard to break that habit. Yeah. Another thing I do with the student's fingers sometimes is like, like the other day I was reading with a second grader it was a book about um, Westward Expansion. Uh, actually, it was from Geodes, which I think is the series that you were excited to buy in your incredible <laughs> text chapter. But um it was, she, she couldn't read the word tribes. And I've seen this before where they can't recognize the vowel sound when there's suffixes in the word. And so I cover, I used like the pinky, like, cause that's the smallest finger. Yep. And I covered up the S and as soon as I covered up the S, she said tribe. And then I yep. uncovered the S and she goes tribes. Yes. I yep. don't know why they can't yeah. see that. You know, that me- it's like, they can't see that final E when there's a suffix on it. Um, yeah, yeah, it confuses them. Yeah, so sometimes I'll do that where instead of pointing, sometimes I'll have them use another finger to just sort of cover up a piece of the word or if it's a multi-syllable yeah. word, send out just the first syllable and the second syllable. Mm-hmm. And that helps I will cover too. too. And that's really helpful for, um, so like I'm beginning the year first grade right now. And so I have a student, oh, she she's actually, she's missed so much school. So she's really struggling with that blending. Mm. So um, if you just had a CVC and it's like 
up. And right away, she like flips it, pot, or she says trap. She says something totally different. And so what I do is cover that, the last letter and go t, ah, and then I have her blend those two together. Ta. Okay. What is is that called? Kava? What is that called? Coda? Continuous blending. It's, oh, oh, um, yeah. Part of the word. Body coda. Body coda. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. Same kind of thing or continuous blending is another way or success blending. And so that's really helpful too. just use your finger to cover part of the word, kind of like what you were just saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Well, with those decoding strategies, they need to practice them with decodable text, right? Yes, absolutely. I love decodable text. Yes. So which are your favorites or do you have a good, you know, do you have some good curriculum at your school that already includes some decodable text? Oh, I've just... Um, I've just written grant after grant after grant to get awesome. lots of decodables. Like I, you can't have too many decodable texts when you're a first mm-hmm. grade teacher or a kindergarten teacher. Right. So there's a lot that I like. Um, and what I like is having varying, like some of the decodables have very high percentage of decodability and some are lower. And that's, I don't think we talk about that enough, but what I do is I will transition students from high decodable um, books to lower decodable books before then giving up, you know, getting a regular authentic text. So it's kind of a nice way to transition them out of them. Um, So I love Flyleaf Publishing. Yes. Um, I love those. I just recently got some books from Whole Phonics. Mm-hmm. Have you seen those? Those are adorable. And I don't have enough. So already I'm like, I need to write a donor's choose to get more of those. <laughs> yes. Um, I have um, geodes. You mentioned geodes are harder because they're the decodability percentage is less. There's yes. more. You know, so um, not all my kids can read those at the beginning of the year, but that's what I like to transition them into after, you know, they're a little more solid. Um, I have the laugh phonics readers from Scholastic. There's like the short vowels, laugh a lot readers. Those are really cute and big, vibrant pictures. Um, I know there's like a bunch of others that I'm, oh, half pint kids. Mm-hmm. Half pint kids are great, especially for kindergarten because there's so many that are at that CVC level. Yeah. And sometimes a lot of decodables quickly go into harder concepts. So I love half pint because they have tons that are at that simple Love that it. new UFLY reading curriculum that Florida yep. gave, um, they have great decodable stories for each of their lessons. And then they also have that great Google table where they've aligned their curriculum with all those other series of yeah. decodable texts, which is useful. I go to that like every week. Yep, I do too. And those ones are free. So, mm-hmm. and those are just passages. So I will like to use those passages that I print out in my whole group. And, but in small group, I prefer to use like actual A book, book that they mm-hmm. can hold. Yeah. Nice. With with great pictures, you know. And so. I know you're like me because we probably started teaching in the early 2000s at the same time. Uh-huh. Like that, those books did not exist back then. Yeah, I know. That's why it's so exciting because I, and I tell people if you're turned off by decodables and you're like, I hate decodables, you need to go and see what else is out there because there's more and more, you know, mm-hmm. there's like a variety now. There's so many options and they're better. They're so mm-hmm. much better. But do you have some first graders in your room that are pretty fluent readers that you're using absolutely too yeah so and like so a lot of those can use geodes you know those are great for building knowledge and they don't sound like a decodable they're really I think they call them readables now because the ah 
I like that. That is what they're calling them. So I can use those for them. And of course, authentic text too. Mm -hmm. So you do a lot of read aloud. Do you do shared reading too? Yeah. So well-defined shared reading, but yeah, yes. I mean, we all kinds of decodables are not the only thing that they are being exposed to. So I do read aloud to them and we discuss and we'll have, um, you know, our shared readings like, a, you know, we're all reading a text together. So at the beginning of the year, first grade, it is still kind of decodable that for them, mm-hmm. because th- they really shouldn't be reading complex text until they're not an emergent reader anymore, but that the, the texts that we're reading all together get harder throughout the year. And so, you know, by January, they're a little more complex and then they're getting more authentic and not decodable. And that's kind of fun. Um, it's just fun to see, especially first grade, you really see them start transitioning out of them the second half of the year. January is so exciting. January, February. (laughs) It's amazing. So yes, it's not the only thing. And it's important to know you do have to transition out of them. And so sometimes I worry that people are Mm overcorrecting and thinking, oh, science of reading means we only have decodables now. Um, no, they're like training wheels. Yeah. And once they're ready, you move out of them. Right. We had Emily Gibbons on last year and she was saying the same thing. She's like, you wouldn't keep your child on training wheels on a bike forever. You've got to take those training wheels off. Yes, exactly. It's helpful to think about it in an analogy like that. So, Mm -hmm. um, all right, move five, embrace a better approach to teaching quotation marks, sight words. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I was taught that a sight word was a word that can't be sounded out. Mm-hmm. That's what I I think that's really common. And you go and look at like the free, the, the fry list or the Dolch list. There's so many words on there, completely decodable in it. Gosh, uh, you know, yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, there's no reason to teach, you know, teach those words differently. And additionally, it's not the most efficient way to store words by visual memory. There's a mm-hmm. limit to how many words you can memorize as a whole visually. So we don't want to do that. And um, so we we do want them to hear the sounds in the word and connect them with those letters that they see in the word. Mm-hmm. So do you do sound mapping with the students? So uh, so the to way teach I the teach... sight words. And how many do you do like a week? Like or... Is it part of your curriculum since you're first grade? That's just really interesting to me. I know. Well, and when I taught kindergarten, that was one thing I, I was really frustrated by was like some of these uh, curriculums and some districts who would have them teaching high frequency words at the very beginning of the year. And I'm like, they don't even know their letters yet. Right. How does so that make sense? Random symbols on a flashcard. Yeah, yeah. That makes no sense. And in, in kindergarten, I was very much like, we will not be introducing any of these words for a few months, you know? <laughs> um, uh, first grade, yes, I probably do mm, two a week, maybe. Okay. I don't I don't like to do too many because we're practicing spelling them. And so we practice that, but we might do, you know, we, we might do three one week, but I try to keep it around there. Mm-hmm. Okay. So. And do you, um, are they part of your spelling like instruction for the week or are they part of your, so I mean, teaching instruction a... is really, the, Oh, do is... they align with my, so if possible, yes. However, um, it just, it like depends when you need them in certain books. So if you have, like, I have a curriculum I'm following and then I just need to teach them. So it's, they're not always 
embedded with the with the phonics concepts. But okay. um, I don't teach the ones that are completely decodable, like in it. Right. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. So do you're those. mostly teaching the the, like, the ones uh, that have it or, or that have the schwa or something. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. So then yeah. you can then you only need to teach a few weeks. Yeah. Because yeah. Oh yeah. Exactly. So um, and that's what's great is you can take your list and pare it down. Mm -hmm. You know, and you're like, oh, there's so many of these. My district says I have to teach these 100 words. Oh, look how many are completely decodable with just the alphabet. We'll yeah. take those out. You don't need to teach those. And then. Could you do that when you teach TH? You know, you'll have to see if you need it sooner for a story, you might have to teach it sooner. But yeah, so you can kind of reorganize. Um, so how I teach them is we'll say the sound. Tell me the sounds in of, uh, and then we're going to do those lines. Uh, we do um, sound. I call them sound lines. We just draw lines on our whiteboards. Uh, mm, okay. And then I'm going to say, okay. Look, here's the first spelling. I chose of. It's a really hard one because it's really <laughs> unusual. But the O is the, uh, you know, the F is spelling the V. And we talk about that. Oh, also the V, if we turn our voice off, it's that's the F, you know. So um, anyways, we point out the irregular part and then we rewrite it again. So anyways, just the idea that was fast. But if you if you get the book, it's in there mm -hmm. <laughs> and some videos. But um it's just you want to think of connecting the sounds and the letter and you want to connect it to meaning too, which is really hard with a word like of. We're going to use it in a sentence, but it's a function word. So that's tricky. But um, I always say United States of America or the three yeah, of yeah. hearts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a good idea. But um, anyways, that's how they'll store it in the memory by connecting the sounds with the letters and the meaning. Mm -hmm. I like that. Uh I like that you included the meaning part because like um I've added that to my steps of sound mapping, you know, where it's like tap yeah. it, map it, you know, whatever. Oh, yeah. Oh, but yeah. um I always add the step use it because I think it is oh. so important for them to connect yes. it to that meaning. Yeah. Uh, and that helps. Um, you were talking about how many times you have to a student has to practice. I feel like if you add that use it step, it um lowers the amount of repetition they'll need. Yes. And then another fun thing to do with those irregular words is that like mispronunciation correction. So, you know, they might, we might look at the word what and go at what? Oh, and then they switch it and change it to what, you know? Mm -hmm. And my students would just like had so much, they always have so much fun coming up with those. Like, um, you know, I shared, I think the word friend. And then every time I said the word friend, they would go fry and fry <laughs> and, and they, they thought it was so funny and they would remember those, but it would help them spell it. <laughs> yeah, you were talking about Wednesday for Wednesday. Yeah, yep. I still do that in my head. How many yeah. of us still do that? We totally yeah. do. So. And together is to get her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah it's fun. I wrote a quote down from that, from that chapter that I loved so much. You said, um, when students become such expert memorizers, their limited ability to decode goes undercover. And I think that's, that was what was happening in those like early kindergarten classes where they were like, you're going to learn a hundred words, you know, the first mm. <laughs> two months of kindergarten, but they weren't, then those decoding skills were going undercover and we were asking them to become yeah. expert memorizers instead. Yeah. And some of those kids with a weakness in phonemic awareness, this is what they're doing. They're relying on memorizing, memorizing, and some of them are very gifted so mm -hmm. they can memorize a lot of words uh, and it won't be until they're a little bit older when they realize, oh my goodness. Second grade. Yeah. 
they can't read. And I know I was talking to an adult. He actually has dyslexia. And he was like, that's what I did. I memorized words. That's what I did. It was like, they don't realize the connection between the sounds and the letters. And, you know, the, um, a lot of us have those screeners with nonsense words. Mm -hmm. And this is why those are so important because you can have a a student that, you know, the teacher's like, oh, they're reading, but they couldn't do these nonsense words. Oh, that's like a red flag. Yes. (laughs) Maybe they're not as good a reader as you think. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, well, I think even though like I, I I get why you put move one, two, three, four, and five, phonemic awareness, phonics, decoding strategies, decodable uh-huh. text, and then those high frequency words. Those are my first five moves also when I meet a, a struggling reader, but I, I appreciate that you didn't stop there because it is so important. Um, you know, sometimes science of reading is, you know, said, oh, we're just phonics, but that's not, that's only just, you know, a little bit of Scarborough's reading rope. Um so yeah. you move on into move six and seven, move six being about fluency and move seven being about comprehension and vocabulary. And I think that's so important. So let's move the conversation there. Okay. Um, when do you decide when to work on fluency as a focus with your students? Are you doing it all the time or is it more like, you know, when you're transitioning the students out of those, you know, decodable text? Well, you can be doing fluency all the time because fluency starts at the letter level and then at the mm. word level and then at the connected text, you know, level. So um, fluency is a combination of accuracy, rate, and prosody. Accuracy and rate together, that's automaticity. And that's what we're working on. So even with the their letter sounds, we want them to be automatic with their letter sounds. So as you're f- focusing on getting those letter sounds quick and automatic, Mm -hmm. that is part of the fluency, right? And then going to the word level, being able to be fluent at the word level and going to the text level. So so it's not like we have to wait to start working on fluency. You can be doing that all along. And so, yeah. And so do you do stuff um, whole group with the students? Do you do it small group, one-on-one? So one- you know, one of the ways is increasing the opportunities for practice. You can do that in whole group and small group because that's going to bring that automaticity piece. And then, yes, I'm also doing this in um, in small group. There's I have a couple strategies as I'm reading with students that I like to work on. If students are already automatic and accurate, then we're going to pull in that prosody, uh, which is like the expression and intonation. But it doesn't always, I don't always have to wait. For example, today I was working with one of my groups and the word, the book said, can Zach with a question mark. And so they're just reading can Zach, Zach, can, whatever. But I stopped them and look, see the question mark. We're going to read this one. Can Zach like a Mm -hmm. question. That's just a little, you know. And that's, that's a very simple decodable text, but you, yes, you're bringing very... fluency into the conversation. Yep. And we're repeated, repeated readings are, uh, you know, proven to be very effective for fluency. So we're reading text multiple times. I also, in the whole group, I have a great partner reading routine that I've been using that I learned from a researcher, Dr. Matt Burns. And I share that it's, it's more appropriate for second grade and up. But I do it, I do a version of it starting in first grade, but I wait, I wait for that until like January when we're talking before, when they're a little more ready. (laughs) 
um, for that. So anyways, yeah, I just want to like shift the mindset of thinking we work on fluency later because we're, we're doing the building blocks now. I love that. Especially because like I have learned that, you know, um, rapid automatic letter naming is like a, you know, it, it it's a good, like almost like indicator if somebody's going to have a struggle with reading later, yeah, if they're not good true. at rapid automatic letter naming. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, I do like those fluency suggestions that you have in that fluency chapter. I even more like all the little bitty comprehension activities that you focus on. I feel like chapter uh, move seven, chapter seven is like really a glimpse into your classroom of like all the different (laughs) kind of varied things that you do. Um, Yeah. Because, sorry, move seven. I'm going to tell the listeners real quick. (laughs) Move seven is improve comprehension by developing vocabulary and background knowledge. Yeah. I love this move too. And I love sharing all those ideas, Mm -hmm. but really this is an an error I was making before. It was just not realizing how important background knowledge and vocabulary is to comprehension, but researchers have known that for years. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's not like reading comprehension is like this skill where you're like, I have this skill and now it transfers. Oh, I have reading comprehension. It's going to transfer to every text I read now. It's not how it works. And the ability to comprehend is so dependent on so many, like a wide range of knowledge and skills. So I love uh, this quote that um, it's reading comprehension is the orchestrated product of a set of linguistic and cognitive processes. Ooh. Um, and I just love that. It's an orchestrated product of all these different things. And that mm-hmm. comes from an article there, uh, Castles, Russell and Nation. It's an mm-hmm. excellent article, but um, there's just so many things going on. It's multifaceted. It's so complex. And it's hard because we can't just like, you know, uh, you know, screwdrive the student's brain and drill it and open it and see what's happening because it is a process that's happening as they're reading and they're constructing meaning from this text and what meaning are they constructing from the text? And we don't actually measure that meaning until we ask them to answer some comprehension questions or tell us about the story after they've read. And so there's no way to kind of see it as it's happening. Yeah, there's just so much going on there. It's it's really hard to assess. So how do we get students? I'm struggling with this because like, first off, like, how do you just get students better background knowledge that you can't do it? You can't fix that in one day. You have to just sort of yeah, that embed is it in all of your teaching routines and all of your book choices and curriculum choices and things like that. Yep. It has to, that knowledge has to accumulate over time. But So just be thinking about how we can build that knowledge over time, over the course of the, over the year. the time when we have the students Mm -hmm. and then do you also teach comprehension strategies yes there is than isolated skills like yeah there's still a place for those strategies and I love the reciprocal reading strategies if you've learned if you've ever heard of those um which is you know summarizing predicting Mm -hmm. questioning visualizing um, so those kinds of things it's just that we don't have to do that forever like so we don't have to focus too much on those strategies. And the research has shown that, you know, I can't remember how many hours of instruction, but it's a lot smaller than what we tend to do. We tend to just go overboard with that. Because mm-hmm. we need to be, I guess, watching more for the transfer of that strategy and the use of it and the student being flexible and saying, oh, I'll use the strategy now or versus I'll use this strategy, not just I'll use predicting all the time. Yeah. And, uh, and then just thinking about how the vocabulary and the background knowledge, you know, 
plays into that. And I share the story of with my son, because I have a son with dyslexia and I worked with him a lot and he wanted to read a book on black holes as mm-hmm. part of our, you know, when we're doing intervention together. So I got a book from the library um, and he was reading it aloud to me. And, and let me tell you, he was obsessed with black holes. He had listened to podcasts. He had taken a class. He had watched videos. He had read other books. He know, he knew everything about black holes. And I was like, I didn't. And so he was reading that passage and I'm like, wait, stop, wait, go back. Huh? What? And I like, there was all these you were the one who had the comprehension break. Yeah. I was like event horizon quasars. What is this? I couldn't understand what it was describing. So even though I can decode better than he can, he was comprehending that book better than me. That is (laughs) a huge example. Yeah. Yeah. That shows how important background knowledge and vocabulary is. So that's in my classroom. I have to think about how can I focus on that more? Don't just like, no, really intentionally teach those vocabulary words. Don't just go, oh, whoops, we didn't get to it today. You know, mm-hmm. like, so. Mm-hmm. So you were, when you as the reader with your son, you were monitoring your own comprehension. So you were yeah. using oh. some strategies, recognizing yes. it yeah. broke down and then you asked him questions. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I use those strategies. Nice. Yeah. And you, but you, as you knew which strategies to use at the time. So, Uh, mm -hmm. yeah. So I see that there's a time and place where we should teach those comprehension strategies, but we need Uh to teach them in a flexible application way. Uh And so I love all your strategies for teaching vocabulary too. Um, You give some great examples, like your vocab daily routine in here. Um, Also the oral language that you did. And then the, I love sophisticated class words. I'm using that starting tomorrow it's so cute and it's so fun to hear them well and even if you just pick a couple of those words and like I'm gonna start using that Uh, so I remember being instead of calling our big books big books I call them anthologies and I remember at first the kids are I'm like okay get out your anthologies and they're all like look what is she talking about what's an anthology you know (laughs) oh that's the big collection of stories your anthology get out your anthology and then soon they were using that word you know and and it's so fun to hear them so just even picking a couple of those sophisticated words uh that you could use you know that week and just think about how you No, I love it you have accumulate allocate all of these could just be you know distribute um, issue replenish stockpile all those just talking about classroom supplies that yeah yeah those oh, are we great papers we're out of the papers we need to replenish them mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> and what I think too is that you could um one standard I have such a hard time teaching is shades of meaning I just oh, yeah. never give enough time to shades of meaning and so I think that those would be great opportunities where as you're talking about the synonym, it's not really a direct synonym. It's more like a different intensity of yeah. <laughs> passing <laughs> out or allocating or things like, you know, and you can really yeah. have like a good discussion with the student about which is, you know, the best word to use in that situation. Yeah. Which is, that's what we want them to be just like flexible with comprehension strategies. We want them to be flexible with vocabulary. So right. I love yeah. that. Um, one other thing that I thought was really, really interesting Um and I'm saying this because I'm reading a lot about comprehension on my own um, because we're about to do a bunch more episodes about it um, following the episode with you (laughs) that's airing. And um, what I realized is how important comprehension, uh, how how closely tied text, reader, context, and purpose are 
I don't think I realized how much those all went in together with comprehension. And so I kind of cringe about the fact that sometimes I just told students to go read and I didn't really give them a purpose for reading, even if the purpose was just go enjoy the book. Like that's a purpose and that will inform the level of comprehension they have versus a purpose like go read this chapter well enough so that you can explain it to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a different purpose yeah. and I'm going to pay attention to the book differently. So now that I've learned that about comprehension, I'm kind of paying attention to that purpose piece, but I appreciate that you mentioned this in this chapter because that was something new to me. I'm I'm constantly learning all this stuff too. Yeah. Well, we're always learning and there's always more to learn. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the thing with science too. We talk about the science of reading. Well, you know, we're going to be having more and more research come out, you know? Mm-hmm. So. I, I love that you make that very clear in all these chapters too. You're like, this is how I know it. It's best to do it today. But yeah. I'm not saying this is how we'll do it tomorrow as I keep learning. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. Well, anything else you want the teachers to know while we have you here about uh, just really good instruction routines to do? Yeah, no, I'll just say that if you if you get the book, don't skip the conclusion, because that's very important to me. And to my, I really share, you know, kind of the story of my son a little bit and how he's doing. And it's just like, it's my favorite section of the book. (laughs) I think my favorite section is just the um, where you keep doing stop doing start doing. Oh, yes. So there's a keep stop start at the end of each chapter, like a quick little blurb I guess yeah yeah and I appreciate that that just that helped me kind of um I guess submit my own learning Mm teach yeah well you're a good fit in the reading teacher's lounge I wish you could be here all the time (laughs) it was so fun I enjoyed the conversation and um where are you Uh, maybe I could come see your classroom sometime I'm in Utah okay oh that is very far (laughs) we're in Georgia we're in Georgia yes (laughs) if I ever get out your way I would love to come see your classroom Okay. Well, thank you for sharing your time and expertise with everybody here at the Reading Teachers Lounge. Thanks for having me.